Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones licking his thumb. What's up with that, uh, dude? I, I know I gotta take the uh, video off, huh? <laughs> you can hear that, huh? <laughs> I can hear it. I can see it, dude. I was I was eating hummus. Should we start over? Hummus. <laughs> Who eats hummus? I, I didn't know you were. I, you know, I'm married to a half Arab, right? I didn't know you were Jewish, dude. I'm married to a half Arab. They stole that food from us. Hey, um. From us <laughs> now, you're now you're one of them. All right, let's, once you marry in, you're in. Let's start over. All right. Hey, church planner. This is Pete Mitchell, and this is Peyton Jones here with yet another episode of the old church planner podcast. It's finally legal. We're eighteen. Yeah, eighteen, baby. We're an adult now. So uh, no more kitty court for us. That's right. From now on, Pete, we're going to act completely grown up. Which, uh, by the way, th- it was so funny. We were at a, a, an event this last week, and you were talking to somebody. And when you referenced the podcast, I thought you really summed it up nicely. You called us the Beavis and Butthead of church planning. Yeah, I mean, because they, they asked, like, so what's your show like? You know, what's a podcast like? Is it like you two all serious? Is it like uh, you're just talking? I think they just some- assumed that we were serious. You know, yeah. We're talking church, so it must be serious. Yeah, so I was like, man, they don't they don't know us, and it just jumped out of my mouth. And yeah, I mean, we walked away laughing, but that's <laughs> not, not them even so much, like, but we did. <laughs> yeah, they're looking at us kind of blankly. But we had just been having dinner with Rick Warren, and uh, we were sitting there with a few other church planners, and man, we were kind of like the Beavis and Butthead of church planning at some points during that conversation, uh, which we'll get to on this particular episode of yield uh church planner because it was actually that was that was an amazing time i mean it was i I think when we started there was like six or eight of us there at the table 
Absolutely. And, uh, just sitting there chatting with Rick. And he really, like, I saw you put on Facebook. It was like three and a half hours. Was that how long we were with yeah. him? Yeah. It was from, uh, yeah, it was like, yeah, it was three yeah. and a half hours. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And he just poured out into all of us that were sitting there. I mean, just like a total brain dump of church planning insight, which is actually uh, what we're going to be talking about here on this episode. We're going to talk about the insight that we got from Rick Warren. I'm going to talk about three things that I took away from that three and a half hours, and you're going to share uh, three things that you took away. We actually both said that we got a lot more than three things out of it. I'm just thinking, you know, time-wise on the podcast, um, we could only hit maybe three if we shut up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of people don't realize uh, that he is the godfather of church planning. I mean, you know, we're we're all like running little local things, but this guy is epic in his church planning efforts. And a lot of church planners don't know that. Um, we've got a future issue of Church Planner Magazine coming out focusing on the work of Saddleback. We were able to, to chat with Rick um, a couple of times about that. Uh, this past week. And of course, the dinner, we got to lay out some stuff that at one point we busted him up because we told him what the cover was going to be. And he, he he really dug on that. But our aim is to really get people to understand, you know, you just think of Rick as like purpose-driven church, 40 days of purpose, Saddleback. You don't Huge even mega know. church. They make a lot of money, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, you don't even know. It's like the tip of the iceberg of what you know about Rick Warren. You know, years ago, no one knew all the money he was pouring into AIDS research so that he could have a, a seat at the table to talk to the gay community for the gospel. Um, a lot of people didn't know that he reversed tithe and, you know, had paid back 23 years of his income back to Saddleback, um, all off what he had made from his books. He didn't want to make a dime off the church. And then he gave 90% to the advancement of the gospel to charitable and Now causes. he's up to 91. Now he only lives on 9%. Are you kidding me or are you joking? No, I'm serious. <laughs> No kidding, huh? Yeah. I, uh, it was like last year, the year before, or something like that. They decided that they were going to take down what they lived on to 9%. I mean, it, it's Man. not like, you know, it, it's a lot of money, right? Cause well, yeah, of course. He's got the number one selling nonfiction book in history. Wow. I mean, wow. they've sold more hardback copies of that book, of Purpose Driven Life, than any other book out there. I've read whole books. Marketing books dedicated to the marketing strategies that I don't know if it was accidentally used or intentionally used, but brilliant marketing strategies. And for myself, one of the reasons why I'm excited that we're going to do this podcast is uh, there are a lot of Christians who've just got a bug up their butt about Rick and don't like him. Yeah. And, um, of course, I forgot to turn off the ringer on my phone, so now it's ringing. But uh, I would just say that, and I don't know how to turn off my ringer. Uh, it doesn't matter. This is I, our podcast. That's right. We can have phones ringing. We can have dogs barking. We have trains go by. We can have phones ringing, and people like it. <laughs> I, I would say that anybody that's got a problem with Rick Warren has no clue what they're talking about when it comes to the man because yeah. – one of the huge takeaways that I got, and I already kind of knew this partially from uh, our talk between you and I, um, you had shared you'd gone to an event with him last year where there was just a yeah. few church planners, 
and you were blown away by the guy. So I already kind of had that that mindset, but seeing him, hearing him, there is no doubt in my mind that this is a man that is passionate about preaching the gospel to the lost. Yeah. And he will use whatever means necessary to do that. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, you know, it, it's funny, Pete, because some people are more about getting They, you know, even Paul says it. some use uh, they, they're peddlers. He says, I'm not a peddler of the gospel. And he said, some uh, people uh, see godliness as a means to financial gain. And then he also says, um, and this exposes many ter- uh, teachers today, and it, it, it kind of explains why a lot of guys are doing what they do. One of the other things that he said was that uh, uh, some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Um, and, and so you, you know that there are guys in ministry for the wrong reasons. But when you look at Rick Warren and you hear, and, and here's two things about Rick. When I was at that, uh, what I'm, what I was about to say, I'm going to just finish my thought. Uh, you don't know like 99% of what the guy's doing. And that's because when I was at that event last year, he made a point of talking to young ministers and that is his passion. His passion is to actually tell them, look, uh, you know, if you, um, if you want to know anything about me, he said, there's two things. I know what's said about me, that I don't preach the gospel, that I this and that. And he said, but you also have to know, number one, I never defend myself. That's why you'll never see me speak out. He says, I'm like Nehemiah. I'm building a wall. I'm way too busy. He said, number two, um, I, uh, I don't tell people what I do. I don't brag about it. So, um, so we even there that night and even a year ago, we only heard uh, a small fraction of what the guy's doing. That's what we want to kind of uncover. When you say he's got a passion for the lost, he doesn't just have a passion for the lost. He's got a, he's got a passion for the lost to the ends of the earth. I mean, he, he busted out the statistic that he had, uh, personally saddleback had knocked out out of the 3,600 unreached people groups in the last 10 years. Uh, he personally, Saddleback, had knocked out 600. And he has got church plants in, I think, do you remember, Pete, was it like 168 countries right now? I, You know, I don't remember exactly what the number was. He threw the number out there, and uh, we'll get that for him. They've uh, been from to every again. country, so... Yeah, they've been to every country laying the foundation of planning in every nation. They've sent out 22,000 people to the mission field from Saddleback. So, you know, and, and they've planted from their first year. He made a commitment in his first year of church planting that he would plant one church a year minimum for every year since Saddleback started. And uh, I think he said since then they've started like uh, – I thought he said 17,000, but when he's throwing these figures around, it's hard, you know, your, your brain's kind of, at one point, Pete, I, I grabbed your phone cause I left my phone in the car cause it was raining. And I said, uh, dude, give me your phone. Cause I just had to start taking notes off the dude. Yeah. Like that's what it's like sitting there. And he's so passionate whenever he's around young guys. I remember this one time he gave this amazing piece of advice and he leans over to this dude who looked like he was never going to use this advice ever. And it was something to do with, he was talking about how he's meeting with the King of Jordan to open the gospel for, uh, 
uh, non-Orthodox churches in uh, the country of Jordan. So he's just flippantly thrown out. When I was meeting with the king of Jordan, he leans over to this guy who's got to be like 22 years old and says, this other church planner that was with us, he goes, uh, by the way, take note of this. Whenever you're boom, boom, boom. And he, <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, but that's his passion is to pour into people, like you said. Pete. What I thought was really interesting is he said that just, just as an off-the-cuff remark, he goes, the two types of people I like to hang out with most, number one are pastors, and number two are prisoners, because they're Amen. both so passionate about Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And because, um, I mean, part of the story got on, um, you know, the Purpose Driven Life book, got into the hands of, uh, hey, there's the train, got hey, in hey. the hands of uh, a prisoner. I can't even remember the name of the prison. It's It's since been uh, shut down. And they planted a church on the prison grounds, and that story was just amazing. Yeah, I mean that that wasn't even one of my my things that I wanted to bring up and and share with everyone. But uh, and he's like, "Look, dude, I'll come up there and preach. I'll come up and preach to your to to the prison. Absolutely." Yeah. Whereas yeah. you know you've got somebody, and by that point he's already made you know millions off <clears> of his <throat> book. Um, how, how many people would look at that and go, "Look, dude, you know here's what my day fee is." Here's what my speaking fee is. Um, that's a long way for me to go. I'm going to be away from home. I need to get X amount of dollars, blah, blah, blah. This dude is like, look, I'm here to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want me there? I'm there. Mm. And uh, they ended up starting a church in the middle of this prison that had 500 members. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's yeah. that's huge. That's bigger than most churches anywhere. Dude, we're we're gonna get that story off of him. I mean, he started telling that story, and by the end of it, he made he drops this bomb on us, and that's what it's like sitting at a table with Rick Warren. Is he's just dropping bomb after bomb, and it, it, it's not like sitting with Pete where he's dropping the f bomb, or <laughs> you know, like me dropping the a bomb like I did in Church Zero. I mean. He is, and I'm only teasing about Pete. He, he's never said that in front of me. Really? In front wow, of, you're, you're one in, of the few. I'll say that, man. <laughs> but but the I'm deal trying is, to is, stop, baby. I'm trying to stop. Hey, we're 18 now, Pete. Hey, you know what? This By the way, I got to share something, man. I got to share. I was I was checking out our stats on uh, on iTunes, how people are rating us because we've asked everyone, hey, if you listen to this podcast, rate us on yeah, iTunes. Yeah. It helps us. Yeah. Which, by the way. The rest of you guys are not rating us. We've actually now we've built up to a pretty good audience, and you guys aren't rating yeah. us either. You really don't like us, or you, you don't want to rate us. So somebody gave us a four star rating, the first four star rating. Everyone else five what? star. And so I was. <laughs> <laughs> no one even understands that joke. That's the best. And so um, I was like, I couldn't wait to read the comments because I was, I was sure that it was going to be like. Well, if they weren't so darn sacrilegious and, you know, making all these jokes all the time, I would have given them five stars. But no, the guy's like, oh, I'm totally hooked on this. Apparently not five star <laughs> hooked, but he's hooked. So, you know, whatever. You know, OK, this is a little bit of a side note, but um, I got to get this off my chest. I got this little bee in my bonnet about this, and it, it, it is related. Some people with their ratings are really lame about it. Right, like I got a friend. He will not give on Amazon a five star rating, so he he reads my book and he's like, "I gave you a four star." Now you know to everyone reading, four star is like, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's not a five. It's not 
excellent. That's what five star means. He goes, well, you know, my, my scale system is kind of like, you know, is it a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity or screw tape letters? In other words, that's a five star. And I said, wait a second, pal. What, what you're talking about is classic, right? And he goes, yeah. I mean, you're not, you know, the book is good, but it's not a classic, is it? And it's not on the same level. And I said, you know, the, the deal is, let me tell you how I define a classic. It gets a five star today because it's just that good. But then 10, 20, 30 years from now, people are still giving it a five star. That, my friend, is the definition of a classic. I don't know if anyone gives five stars 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But for holy heck, man, if you're going to rate at a top-notch podcast, like no, I'm just <laughs> like like Church Planner <laughs> podcast. We told no, someone, but, I go, she goes, "How do I find your podcast?" I go, "Go to iTunes, just type in Church Planner podcast. We're the number one podcast." She's like, "Oh, you're number one!" Like all offended by it. I'm like, "Hey, we're, <laughs> we're the number one." I don't know what you, well, I, what was I? Yeah, it, yeah, it, and and oh, by the way, as as we're talking about the the final thing Pete leaves these people with when when I say, <laughs> oh yeah, we're kind of like the Beavis and Butthead of church planning on this show. That's <laughs> right before we leave. Pete goes, we're number one, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm walking out there. We're walking out the door, and I look at I go, you had to say that, didn't you? Didn't you, Pete? You just had to drop that before we left. Well, anyway, back back to Rick. Back to the conversation at hand, man. So my first takeaway, let me let me just kick it off with my first takeaway, which we could actually do, I think, an entire show on the topic. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, Rick Warren's whole strategy with small groups and how he uses small groups. Why don't you tell everyone how he's using small groups, and I'll tell you why I thought it was so cool. Well... What what he does, and you know, it's really interesting. What he does is he kind of has it as like a, a plug and play, so you can start up a uh, small group. Um, what what he did is he start off, and he was like, "Hey, look, um, we just want you guys to uh, to basically um, lead small groups because he believed that was the the fastest track to replication and reproduction, and so." You know, his goal was to have more small groups and actually people attend the church. And that was to use people in small groups to reach out. And so when he started off, which by I can't, the way you, is what happens now. They have about 30,000 people on the weekend attend the church and 35,000 during the week going to small groups. Absolutely. So, I mean, I can't remember. Do you remember the name that he first had that he had used that he had gotten from reading some book for, for the people that t- uh, led the small group? Gosh, you know, I I don't remember, but I remember him saying that was his biggest problem was he named the the person incorrectly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I totally do. Lay pastor is what he called. That's it. what it was. Yeah, he's like, hey, that sounds really good, a lay pastor. And everyone's like, oh, I'm not a pastor. The word pastor freaked him out. So then he had another guy come in, and that guy changed the word to shepherd, and so he made that announcement. And then that freaked people out. And that so, was worse than. Calling them lay pastors, apparently. Yeah, he's like, that's a weird term. I mean, no one in Orange County's ever seen a sheep or a shepherd, right? <laughs> Unless they've been to the petting zoo. So he was, uh, it, what he finally narrowed it down to was host. And then he got like buttloads of people come, come up and say, hey, you know, we want to be a host. Well, how he and, kicked it off too was he kicked it off really, they had small groups, 
but they only had 800 of them. And you think, okay, well, 800 is a lot of small groups, but not with a church of their size. So when he came out with the Purpose Driven Life, he said, all right, he said this on a Sunday. He goes, I need 3,000 volunteers, and he came up with the right term, which was host. He goes, I need 3,000 volunteers to host a small group, and you're just going to do this for six weeks. We're going to go through this 40 days of purpose, and host, every letter stood for something. First was, he's telling the congregation the the qualification. Um, So H stood for hospitality. You have to be willing to open up your home. Um, and that's the only one I remember. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't know if you remember what OST stood for. I mean, everything, it was like hospitality, open the home. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but what yeah. he was, what he was telling them is all you've got to do literally is provide people snacks, you know, coffee, cakes, whatever, open your home and then press play on the DVD. Right. And right. They got 3,201 people that Sunday to say, I'll do it. And so then he said, okay, we're going to have one-hour training. That's all it takes. One hour. Come tomorrow night, you know, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whatever time they did it at. So um, their auditorium only seats 3,200. So even though they got like 30,000 people that go to this church every week, they have them in groups of 3,000. What, what what was funny, Pete, is you and I actually walked into a main session the day before the conference, and we go, oh, this must not be the main. Like, that's how small it was. You and I thought we were in the wrong spot. We're we like, did. oh, it's too small. We're it's like, too small to be the main hall. Yeah, we're like, this is the, the side chapel, right? Bigger than any church yeah. we'd seen, but still not big yeah. enough to be Saddleback. Yeah. Oh, and then the, the yeah. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> so, so, but here, here's kind of the cool thing, and and he actually went into detail on um, the steps that he took to ensure it was the right hosts. Um, but the main thing was it wasn't supposed to be very difficult to be a host. Like he made everything step by step easy. And so, at the end of uh, they they willed it down to twenty eight hundred hosts. Because there's some people who just weren't ready yet, and so they made them assistant hosts, which, again, was brilliant, right? Because he had people raise their hand and say, hey, I want to be a host. But, you know, after talking with them, they're like, okay, these, these people aren't quite ready yet, but we don't want to hamper their willingness to work in the church. So we're just going to make them assistant hosts, and we're going to have them help out uh, someone else's group. So they willed it down to 2,800. Then at the end of... The six-week period, remember, all they got them to commit to was just to do it for six weeks. But at the end of the six-week period, uh, they ended up keeping a 1,000 of those groups. Wasn't that what it was? was a 1,000? Mm-hmm. And um, so people are like, oh, well, you know, you lost 1,800 groups. He's like, no, are you kidding? I just gained a 1,000 groups because, remember, all I had was 800. Then we had this special deal. You know, we added another 2,800, and now we're back down to 1,800. So they were at 800, now they're at 1,800. And he's like, I'm totally happy with that. He goes, but now we've got it down where, you know, last year we did this push. We had 1,000 people step up to become hosts, 1,000 new small groups, and we didn't lose any of them at the end of the six weeks. And so now today they've got 7,000 small groups 
but kind of some of the the interesting things of this one is the intimacy that's created in the small group. Um, mm. Second is how much easier it is to invite people over to a small group for you know discussion. Like when they originally started, the first thing they went through was the purpose driven life. So hey, you know, for the next six weeks, we're gonna go about you know finding what the purpose of life is. I mean, yeah. so there, there's a to me, I'm looking at it as a marketer going, there's brilliance in that. Because that's yeah. what everybody's out for. That's what they're all trying to find the answer to. And then um, uh, that's what, what gets them kind of in the door. And the whole time, yeah. of course, they're sharing the gospel with people. So one of the things that really stood out was he was talking with a church planner who had a church of 15 people. You remember that part, that story? No. Uh-uh. So this guy says, okay, well, we need some small groups. Who would volunteer to be a host? Again, the key word being host, not you know um, leader, not lay pastor, not shepherd, but just be a host, willing to open your house. And they had seven people raise their hand. And so Rick's like, well, what'd you do? I mean, you can't have seven groups. You've only got 15 people. He goes, well, we did seven groups. And at the end of the six weeks, his 15-person church grew to 70 people. Yeah. You know who uses that is Soma Community, who we, we got to interview, be a theme issue on them in the next magazine, but also uh, Steve Timmis, who wrote Total Church. He has a ministry called Crowded House, and that's exactly what they do. And see, to me, the brilliance of that, like especially like if you've got a, a church plant that's tiny, by having only you know a small amount of people but getting <clears> – <throat> a certain amount of them to raise their hand saying, I will run a small group and not run it. Right. Cause that would scare them, but I will host a small group. And here's the thing. I mean, Saddleback's got all this material. So, I mean, if you wanted to make this really easy in your church, you can go to saddlebackresources.com and you can get all of their DVDs, you know, where all they got to do is press play. You can get their uh-huh. workbooks. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. The resources that he's got, yeah. but now well, you've you- got a small group, but you would invite your friends over, right? Yeah, and you, the people that you work with. Hey, we're going to be going through this stuff. It's just six weeks. You guys might dig it. You know, we're going to have cake and coffee, and they're your friends. Yep. I mean, what a, a brilliant way, in my opinion, to share the gospel, especially to the non-believer, right? Who would be open and interested in this? Now, if you said, "Hey, we're going to have a Bible study for six weeks," I, you know, I don't know how many people you would get. Yeah. You know, we actually use that at Refuge Long Beach. I mean, when we when we wanted to expand out, we asked, you know, we didn't hit it on the same, but we found people that had a house in Long Beach, and we just said we'd be a host. We didn't ask them, will you lead it? And then uh, we provided a leader. But what's genius about Rick um, is that Rick actually gives them like a video. And so it's plug and play. Literally says the only requirement you have is to press the play button. And everything's done for you there. He gives you like a, you play the video and then you talk about it. Yeah. And they've got the workbook so you can work through it. Um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to look at that model and go, oh, well, there's all kinds of problems. What if you got a crazy person leading the small group? And, and you know, I'm sure stuff like that comes up. But you know what? I'd take that problem every day of the week. Heck yeah, man. I mean, if you got people talking about God... And then it does create a problem that also creates another opportunity to talk about God. 
Absolutely. And that's actually where your leaders come from. I mean, we use small groups to develop our leaders. And when I was speaking with one of his uh, assistant pastors, a guy named Dave Alford, um, Dave had said that uh, over the years, what's happened is people with leadership skills, particularly around the world, um, he says, we run these all over the world, not just in uh, Saddleback. But, you know, he says, we got places down in Brazil, where they're they're plugging and playing, they're they're or even they're watching the live stream of Rick, and they get in touch with us and they say, "What do we do? We got this like house full of people," and he says, "We just talk to them and say, well, you know, wh- wh- what do you want to do about it?" And he says, "A lot of times leaders emerge out of that, right? Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do." Yeah, and so you know, he even took it another direction. He goes, "You want to talk about house churches?" He goes. That's what my small groups are. He goes, technically, I got 7,000 house churches. And mm. I thought that was a, a brilliant way that he's looking at. But see, the, the point that I'm getting at here, one, it's great for expansion. I mean, expanding specifically to the lost. I mean, it's it's like you said, uh, uh, Soma Tacoma, we're, we're talking about them in this next month's issue of uh, Church Planner Magazine. In fact, the, the bulk of the material is going to be on them and what they're doing. It is a brilliant method for reaching the lost. And it's a brilliant method for getting people to re-engage. I mean, uh, you talked about at the the conference we were at this last week, you had a session, a breakout session, and you were talking about the interactivity of the church. Mm. And uh, what a great way to bring that interactivity back to the church. Yeah. I mean, where you don't have to feel awkward about, you know, bringing up a, a question or, you know, what about this or, you know, because it's it's a small group. You feel comfortable well, in that environment. This is where, you know, for Rick Warren, right? Like, you know, of course I talk about apostolic ministry in the sense that Wayne Grudem, you know, the theologian, he defines it as, you know, uh, if if by that we mean a church planner, which Rick definitely is. I mean, he church planted back in 1979. The word apostolos meaning sent out one. Well, there there's different types in modern times. Obviously, just to recap... The 12 were unique, right? The 12 were 12, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And then Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles in Galatians 2. And he he gives a special category where he says, have I not seen the risen Lord? You know, he talks about miracles. So he was a special breed of apostle with the 12. He was kind of like the 13th apostle. But then the scripture uses this term nine more times. So you got guys like Apollos, Timothy, Titus, and it just is the New Testament word for missionary church planner, um, maybe a, a pioneer missionary, but a guy who plants churches. So if we're using, you know, the Wayne Grudem uh, understanding of that, that it's a, it's a, it's literally the word church planner sent out one. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that. There is a sense in which you can have an apostle who's a sending apostle. Um, for example, you've got um, movement leaders like Chuck Smith, Rick Warren. All right. Rick Warren is a guy who sent out more missionaries than anyone I know. But the flip side of the coin to sending people out is that a missionary uh, or, or an apostolic leader will specifically want to 
to grab Christians and get them out on the mission field. And what Rick has done is he's come up kind of like Paul, right? He blows through your church on his secondary, uh, second missionary journey in Asia Minor. What's he going to do? He's going to pick up a, a, a Timothy. He's going to drag guys with him. He picks up a whole boatload of guys that he takes with him. And by the end of, of the canon of the New Testament, we're looking at like 32 plus guys that Paul's shipping all over the place. So he was a recruiter. He wanted to get the church out on mission. That's exactly what Rick's done. He's just find a, found a very simplified way of doing it, a very, a very methodical, but so simple that it doesn't even look methodical. But he just took the stigma away from it. Right, and it was trial and error. It wasn't that he just knew how to do it right from, from the get-go. So that was my... That was my first big takeaway from uh, my time with him. Another big takeaway uh, was he talked about, <laughs> and you're going to remember this, he talked about what it would cost for them to build a bigger church, you know, because so many people have said to him, you've got so many people that meet here every weekend, yet your church only holds 3,200 max capacity. Um, why don't you just build a bigger building? And one of the things that he talked about was uh, when they were small, he taught all of his leaders to think big. Hmm. And now that he's big, he tells them all to think small. Yeah. And at first I was like, is he being serious? You know, because no one tells people to think small. But what he was referring to is the fact that no one likes to go to a big church. No one wants to deal where you got to take 30 minutes to park your car. Like there's a tram to take you from the parking lot to the sanctuary. That's how big this church is. I mean, yeah. you you posted a picture of the tram crossing on Facebook and we were having a, you know, a big laugh about that because the church is so stinking big, they need a tram. Like it's literally yeah. the old style tram from uh Disneyland. I mean, yeah, you know, it was. People get in there and that's how you get from the parking lot up to the to the sanctuary. But that's yeah. also because they're doing services every couple of hours. And so, I mean, imagine you got 30,000 people coming through there on the weekend. It's only holding 32 at a time. That means they've got to park, you know, approximately 3,200 cars or, you know, maybe half that, depending on if it's husband, wife type thing coming to it. Uh, stick them all in the cars and they got to, you know, take them up to the service, get them all back to the cars, get them out of there because the next group's already parking. So they must have that that system down. But he goes, you know, it would cost us $80 million dollars to redo the church to make it bigger. And he goes, I would rather take that $80 million and take $1 million and <laughs> spend it 80 times and have 80 new churches all over the world to which, as you remember, we're sitting there and I'm literally sitting right next to Rick and I go, uh, would you like a church in long beach? <laughs> cause and everyone at the table, of course they start laughing. Cause I'm like, Hey, you know, we'll take a million bucks. And he goes, he, I, I, I'm thinking more Beijing, not Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. And what I wanted no. to say was, hey, Jesus loves Long Beach as much as he loves Beijing, buddy. Come on, give us a million. No, he got a kick out of that. You know, one of, one of the things I thought was great about him is he had a cracking sense of humor. And uh, there was a couple times, you know, we were, we were kind of beavis and buttheading it a bit where uh, I think at one point we said uh, something like, because he has an incredible library. I, I once saw a picture of his library, and I was like, dude, that is... He holds a Guinness record for the most amount of autographed books. He's got over yeah. 30,000 autographed books. 
Yeah, so we're sitting at the table, and Robert Coleman comes up. Now, that guy's a legend, right? If you know anything about, like, Master Plan of Evangelism, you know, this Robert Coleman's a legend, right? And uh, so, so Robert Coleman comes up and throws a stack of books down on the table right in front of him and goes, well, there you go, Rick. And Rick starts laughing, and, you know, we're, we're, he's like, thank you very much. And we're like, what's that? And he, he goes, well, he tells us, you know, I hold the biggest, you know, boom, boom, boom. But it's, he makes you sign his book. Like, I gave him a copy of my book, which felt kind of lame, but, you know, it's like, hey, Rick, you know, hey, hey, big, you know, Christian leader, um, here's my stupid book. But, you know, he uh, he was really cool. He goes, did you sign it? And I said, no. And so, you know, he handed me a pen and handed me the book, and I signed it. So now I know I was helping him reach the Guinness Book of World Records. But Or keep he, it. Keep it. it was, he's, already, exactly. he's already got the record. He's like, no, 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 don't give me a book if you didn't sign it. But you know, it was funny because he had a great sense of humor. What what I loved about you know, well, tell him point, about when we asked him where the library oh, yeah. was. Yeah, I, I I go, hey, uh, is the library is it is it like in an underground vault somewhere? That that's Pete and I's guess. We and think, he started we're like, we think it's underneath goes, the parking lot, and you need to take the tram to get to it. Yeah, we're like we like Disney, and there's like three miles of tunnels underneath. And he started laughing. He goes, "No, no, no, it's in the foundation." But he didn't want to talk about you know anything like his. Per- what What was awesome about him is he quickly wanted to turn the conversation back to the gospel and back to pouring into these guys. So we we wanted to kind of geek out on his library. At least I did for a minute. But uh, but no, man, he wanted he, he he's a guy where when you're sitting. With him, you get the sense. This is a guy. He knows how to maximize his time. Right. He was training. He was discipling. Sitting at that table, he was discipling the next generation. Oh, there's the choo-choo. train. Yeah. So, I mean, what I was taking away when he's like, "Look, I'm not going to spend eighty million dollars on another building. I'd rather start eighty more churches and give them all a million bucks to start." Yeah. Then yeah. uh, to build a bigger building because that that really struck me because a lot of Leaders, when they kind of reach this level, you know, of uh, he, he's the rock star of uh, of evangelical Christianity. Yeah, uh, we were making the he's joke. Bono. Yeah, we were making the joke that you know he's the pope of uh, of evangelical, and then you go, oh no, wait a second, Billy Graham's still alive. So Billy Graham's the pope, but he's the pope elect, right? You know, Rick Warren will be the next. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of guys who reach that kind of level, I mean, you know, it's not so much about spreading the gospel. That's not his take at all. Like what he's told all of his, they've got so many satellite churches is he goes, all right, anywhere you guys can put up an extra screen. I want you to put up an extra screen. That's now a new venue. And so one of the satellite churches, uh, like on the side of one of their patios, they put up a screen and put 25 chairs in front of it. And now mothers with kids are out there sitting there. And it made it, again, easier for people to be able to come to church, fellowship with other Christians, and yet not feel like you know their kids are going to be distracting. Because I know what that's like. I mean, my son's mm-hmm. two years old. I mean, when we first started uh, uh, with him, after he was born, we were going there to, obviously, Refuge Long Beach. And we were at the park, so we were a little bit lucky because it was already loud outside. But what happens when he got an indoor church? You know, people are like, you know, my kid's loud. So I don't know if I want to go this week, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And then um, um, another another great takeaway that I got my my third takeaway. It's actually a combination takeaway. One is as a, a marketing guy, I I read a lot of books, 
Now we've we've joked around before. That hey, I, hey, hey, hey! What what is this? I do. I read. I, I don't read. I wouldn't say I read as much as pastors. I'm only reading maybe two to four books a month. Dude, uh, you're a book hustler. You but, know that, right? Well, but see, most of my books <laughs> are business related. They're marketing related, right? Like they're not. They're not theology. They, they very rarely have anything to do with the church because that's not what what's really you know. I've done for years and what's really excited me. Um, so now I find myself reading more of that stuff because I'm, I, yeah. I feel like I'm totally behind and I, I got to catch up kind of a thing. But he was quoting like people from my side of the tracks, as I would call it. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, this is what I learned from Drucker and this is what I learned. And I'm like, dude, this man gets it. He's not just limiting himself to the wisdom of the Christian community. He's like, I'm reading everybody so I can, you know, learn different techniques on leadership. I can learn different strategies for sharing the gospel. Um, and, and to me, that was a huge takeaway because he talked about really how he builds bridges, which I thought was ingenious. I mean, you referenced earlier um, how, uh, you know, they, they've given so much to HIV research. And in doing that, it gave them a seat at the table, so to speak, mm. where now he's got an in with uh, the gay community, which has really had to deal with the HIV problem the most. Yeah. Um, but because it wasn't just, well, you know, that's the consequence for your sin. Ha ha. You're all going to die now. Um, he's like, look, let's, let's figure out, you know, let's put money to research on this problem. And so now he's got an, an, an in at the table, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so when you, you also mentioned that he was over in Jordan uh, meeting with, uh, is it the president or prince? Or I don't have no idea what they got in Jordan. I don't know what kind of king. government they've got. He was, was the king, yeah. King of Jordan. Yeah. Um, and they gave him their highest uh, award. Yeah, humanitarian award. And – the, the the reason why they were meeting was I, I believe it was uh, had something to do with the, the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, and um, so he, here's what they did. They 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 had him run this council right with the Orthodox uh, uh, different Orthodox Christian sects, and um, he went to someone local that he knew in the Orthodox uh, Christian. And he said, all right, here's the people that I'm meeting with. Do you know anybody on this list? And that guy's like, I don't know anybody, but you know, let me tell you someone who does know those people. So he refers him to someone else. Then he goes over and he sits down and he talks with that guy. And that guy goes, okay, well, let me tell you all about these people. Now let me tell you what not to say to these guys. What's going to really tick them off. Let me tell you what you need to say to them. So they know that you're on the same side of the fence as them. Because there can be this this whole animosity between you know the different uh, religious sects, if you will, and he's trying to build bridges, right? He's trying to open the door. So he goes, the very first thing I did, you know, here I'm asked to lead this thing, is he goes, look, let's get something out of the way right here and now. I am the young pup in the room. My church has been around 33 years. You guys can trace your church all the way back to, you know, and he points to somebody and goes, you can trace your church all the way back for 2,000 years to Timothy. You can, you know, and he goes around the room and he basically just self-deprecating humor saying, I'm the new guy. I know I'm yeah. the new guy. Yeah. And instantly 
it sets them at ease. And he goes, all I did is I just went down the list. Everything the guy said, this is what you need to say. And these are the things you never want to say. He goes, there was no resistance. Now we could get into the conversation that we needed to get into. Well, we kept seeing, didn't we? When, when we were there, um, we kept seeing Orthodox, Orthodox priests or Coptics, uh, walking around. And I remember thinking, I don't know what he's doing, but again, like that'll hit the paper, something like this. Um, Rick Warren, uh, uh, you know, uh, becoming Coptic or it'll, you know, it was like when he talked about Cat Stevens coming to his house, like people just act stupid. He, sure oh, enough, he's he goes, a Muslim. He's a, you know, Rick's yeah. a Muslim now. And, and he said, no, because of some of the work that I do, you know, I've established a relationship, like a friendship with Cat Stevens. So he dropped by the house the other day and I took a picture and put it on Facebook. So what, what happens a lot, and this happened when he met with the, with the, uh, the Islamic leaders where the Orange County Register actually had a copy in my hand. And I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who is wise enough to, uh, to be, I hadn't been around here for a while, but even, you know, I knew I'm like, yeah, it's not, that's not what he's doing, but they had put these headlines. And, and, and so what Rick was saying is often people will communicate something that is not true. So be careful what you hear. He, he used a, a, a key, uh, twisting, um, of, of what had actually happens. Great. Yeah, well, there was, a, there was an article and this could be the one you're talking about where, um, the article said, and it had no no factual basis for this because it's totally not true, but the article had said that Rick had worked at a deal with the other Muslim leaders that they won't uh, try and evangelize each other's members. They won't try and recruit them and all this junk like that. And, and Rick actually said, that's completely not true. I've yeah. never told anyone I won't evangelize. I'm here yeah. to spread the gospel, yeah, but amen. I'm absolutely going to open doors to people who the Christian uh, community has pretty much shunned and closed the door on because that's what I'm here to do amen. is to reach out to people. And, you know, it kind of makes you think when you go back uh, 2000 years to what Paul was doing, Yeah, how much do you want to bet there were Christians going, well, wait a second, I thought all of this stuff was supposed to be uh, for the Jews. Yeah. You know, what do you mean you're taking this to the Gentiles? What, what do you mean? You know, that's that's not the deal. This is ours. Yeah. And um, I mean, so, I mean, it, it's a problem that's gone on for, for years. And I remember, uh, you know, right after uh, Matthew Warren died and Rick came back for that first week in July, that first weekend, yeah. um, that he there was some big deal that there was like 16 Muslim leaders and and you know, twenty Jewish leaders from the community they came uh, to his service that weekend, and so many people were up in arms. Oh, he he doesn't he's not biblical. He's not you know telling the Muslims that they're wrong and the Jews that they've they've missed the Messiah. And and he's like, look, dude, I'm opening doors. Are you kidding yeah. me? I've yeah. got such a good rapport with these people that they came to hear about Jesus Christ and my church. Yeah, Amen, Amen. And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of thing. But again, it's that gutsy pioneer spirit that he has where he's got to turn his back. I mean, when I became a church planner, a lot of that kind of stuff frustrated me because I was in a country, you know, like the old saying, I was in it to win it, man. I was not there to please Christians. I was there. And sometimes you got to make a choice, man. Am I going to please Christians or am I going to reach a loss right now? And, uh, you know, to all of his critics, I'd say, how many times have you gotten a Muslim to go to church with you? Boom. Yeah, I can tell you for myself, it's zero. Yeah, 
Same, likewise, man. I would and, be totally and, intimidated around a Muslim, to be frank about it. I'd be like, first of all, are you going to blow me up? Because that would be my my cultural context is not positive towards Muslims. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, that's not the right attitude to have by any means. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying. No, I get you. I, I would be totally freaked out meeting Muslims. Yeah. And not meeting and, you them, know. but you know what I mean. Having a, having a, a friendship with them, I guess, would probably be a, a better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I mean, kind of being married into an Arabic family, it's, it's, it's less of that for me, but you know, I, I guess in a way I kind of look at it like what DL Moody said once somebody uh, gave him a hard time about the way he, he preached the gospel. And, um, you know, I think it was a Calvinist giving him as an Arminian a problem. And he said, well, you know, how, how do you reach him? What method do you use? And they said, well, Actually, I don't have one. I, I I don't. And he said, okay, well, I like the way I do better than the way you don't. <laughs> and see, to me, that's like one of the most beautiful comebacks that I think anyone could ever say. Because it just, if it doesn't shut up the other guy, then you know you're talking to a fool, a literal, you know, biblical fool. Yeah. Because, come on, man. I mean, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Enough yeah. said. Exactly. But those those are my three biggest takeaways. Um, I, I would say that I've probably got at least a half a dozen, <laughs> if not a, a full dozen takeaways from that oh, three yeah. and a half hours. What are, let's go over yours. You know, let, okay. let's, what are your biggest takeaways? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, while we're sitting there, you know, like an idiot, I, I, I have nothing with me. I usually have my phone on me, but I have nothing on me. And I'm thinking, I usually carry my you... notebook with me. And I was like, well, yeah. we're going to dinner with Rick. I mean, what do I need yeah. my notebook for? I felt like well, an idiot. I, I should have known because the last time I was there, you know, um, when I went to the, the young lead pastors, he came and had lunch with us. And I was like, you know, I, I started taking notes, man. And he actually said, and and this is weird because he must he must be used to people taking notes. He actually made the statement, "Hey, if you guys want to take notes, you know, feel free." He goes, "I don't go anywhere without a notebook." The other night he didn't say that, but it, it entered my head, and I'm like, "Crap, I have nothing to write anything down with." So, um, which by and, the way, my thought was, I wish I'd bought my portable recorder. I'm sure he would have let us record that, and that oh, would have been absolutely. like one of those underground tapes that everyone would like pass around the whole church planning community. That's how good this three and a half hours was. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're sitting there and it's about maybe an hour and a half in. And I'm the whole time I'm just thinking, I should ask Pete for his phone. Finally, I broke down. I go, Pete, give me your phone. I took, I mean, my, my, my fingers were nonstop just going. And, and what was funny at first is I'm thinking, he's probably going to think, you know, I'm being rude, just texting, but he knew. Because he's just sitting there like, I just got to tell you, it's an experience. I call it the Rick Warren experience, right? Um, just like I said, you, you're just sitting there and he's he's hitting you with quote after quote or nugget after nugget or stuff you've never heard. The dude is a major thinker. And like he has, he gave uh, during that week one of the most brilliant um, missionary strategies I've ever seen straight out of the pages of Matthew 10. And he made the statement, he goes, nobody, no mission organization on the planet follows these 17 principles. So like, for example, Jesus gave, 
Yeah, he goes for missionary work when he sent out the 72. This was my take. I I have so many takeaways. This is one of them. So I'm looking at this passage going, how come I've never seen this? And he goes, no missionary organization on the planet works like this. And I'm going, dang, dude, I never thought. He goes, "Take take no bag. He's like, okay, so supplies, right? You go do missionary work. You don't bring supplies over from another country. You're robbing trade in that country. You're actually weakening their economy when you bring trade from overseas. What you do is you go in there, you source the locals, you use local labor. You do not go in and build for them. Now you've suddenly put carpenters out of work, you know, and I've, I've read things like that. But what was brilliant was to watch Rick connect some of the most brilliant missiology tactics with Matthew 10 and hand all the credit back to Jesus. And it's the way his mind works. Um, the guy is thoroughly biblical, but until you've been up close, and I don't mean across the table, you've got to really listen to his teaching. It is brilliant stuff. And, and I'm sitting here on the Church Planner podcast knowing that many of, of the church planners that, you know, maybe kind of pride themselves on being underground or cutting edge probably think this is a sellout. And it's simply because they, they don't know the 99% of stuff. They've seen the tip of the iceberg. They've seen the big church. They don't actually know what Rick does. They don't know how radical he is. There is not one person alive today who has done as much for church planning as Rick. And so this is kind of why we're talking about this day, because that was that was a big deal for us, you know, and we're like, we just, we got to take a break from our series to go over this. So that was a huge one. When I was looking at Matthew 10 with him, he was he was blowing my mind. Number two. Um, I got to go back what, and reread that. Because, I mean, I remember him going over that, and I was like, okay, I got to go back and reread that. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because he was, during that time, he was up on stage with Robert Coleman, and sitting in between him is my buddy Ray Chang from EV Free. And uh, <laughs> afterwards, me and Peter are like, why didn't you drop Church Planner Magazine? Well, yeah, because Ray, or, uh, Rick goes, all right, uh, what's the biggest resource right now that's helping uh, Church Planners? And so Ray afterwards were like, dude, why didn't you say Church Planner Magazine? Come on, man. <laughs> It's like, oh, I should have, I should have. I'm like, yeah, you should have. So anyways, uh, you know, so one of the things he said, you you brought up already about Matthew and uh, how tragic that was. And of course, as a a psychiatric nurse um, back in the 90s, man, um, people were more, you think people are ignorant now about mental illness. Um, 1% of the population is schizophrenic, right? That's uh, a reality distortion where you think you're Napoleon or whatever. Um, but over half of the population has been diagnosed with some form of mental illness. You may not realize this, but there's three categories of mental illness. There is uh, your anxiety disorders. Um, those would be like your phobias, just anxiety. I'm you afraid know, of stuff clowns. Like that. Well, you know, it, it would be like OCD, you know, that kind of stuff. Then you've got your depressive disorders. Those are pretty, pretty basic. It's depression. And of course, um, bipolarism is thrown in there as well. Um, but then the, the third category is your schizophrenic, uh, disorders. And there's different types of that. So there's three major categories of mental illness. Well, um, 1% is, is schizophrenic. Okay. 
over 50% is diagnosed the other two. So, uh, so at some time in their life, maybe not now, but, but over 50% of the population has been diagnosed at one time in their life with a mental illness. And that could just be anxiety disorder, depression. Um, that's just those that have been diagnosed. So for the church to be ignorant on this, you know, there are more psychotropic drugs um, prescribed for depression than any other of the pharmaceuticals in the world for any illness, okay? Mm. There, there are more drugs out there, the psychotropic drugs, um, than, than anything. And, and so you think, oh, heart medications, you think, you know, um, you know, obesity, the number one killer of Americans, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you think that, it's not going to be big, but it's huge. And so one of the things that really got me, and I, I knew that uh, when I heard about Matthew, I knew that, man, God is going to use this. He said, as one of his statements, this is one of my takeaways, um, probably my second one, I guess. He said, God, I believe, is going to use me to lift the stigma off of it. Now, I read a statistic today that was very disappointing about how many uh, evangelicals think that Prayer and reading the scripture alone will, will break the, uh, break mental illness in a person's life. And so it was really disconcerting to see that so many people just think it's a spiritual problem. Well, I'm not going to say that sometimes people aren't depressed because of something spiritually gone wrong in their life. That can happen, of course. But there's also a chemical, you know, if you start studying it, there is chemical depression. So when you're looking at uh, mental illness, really one of the things that, that, that Rick did when it all went down, I knew that God was going to use him on this because one of the things that he said was that he felt that God was going to use he and Kay to blow the stigma off of mental illness in the church. And I really think that that needs to happen before we can actually be useful to people with mental illness. I mean, if if over 50% have been uh, diagnosed, then, um, we're looking at, I mean, there's so many more that have never sought treatment because of the stigma. And so, you know, what's really cool is immediately, um, Rick's going to have an opportunity. Now he's going to have a voice because, uh, he's going to be reaching out as someone who's been affected by it. Um, and he, he made a statement. Oh, uh, this, this spoke so much to me. He said, I'm convinced there are people and there are going to be more people that will be driving across the country to come to church here simply because they know now it's a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, a couple of thoughts that I have on that one, I've had so many family members and friends that have had mental illness that it's actually worried me, you know, in my own family, I'm like, you know, as I have kids, are are my kids because it runs in my family. I mean, I I don't uh, suffer from depression, but I've had family members that have had severe depression. Um, I mean, growing up, I had to stop a family member from killing themselves, mm. and um, I still remember as a freshman in high school, I was I was short when I was a freshman. I was still five foot. It's probably like one hundred and five, hundred and ten pounds, trying to hold down this person until help could arrive. Mm. And um, and they've suffered with depression and suicide their entire life. Uh, my grandmother, 
apparently. I didn't know her that well. I mean, she died when I was, you know, still relatively young. I don't know, somewhere between fifth grade and seventh grade. Uh, but she had all kinds of mental illness. And, um, and so, I mean, it, there, there's absolutely a stigma to it. There's a, a way that we treat people who have it. Yeah. Because uh, I know how I am myself. And yeah. um, so I, I, when I heard, you know, Rick saying that, and I also remember him saying, because they had hurt so deeply that he goes, I've got a private email, you know, that only goes out to friends and family. And he goes, I've got a thousand unread emails in it from friends yeah. and family. And he goes, and I've got 10,000 unanswered emails from friends yeah. and family. People are saying, this is how I'm hurting. This is what's happened in my life. And he goes, I just can't get back to him. Yeah. Yeah. That that was a heartbreaking point because some, somebody asked at the table, they said, well, what are you going to do about that? And he goes, I don't know. And and I just, you know, he's a guy where he's got so much wisdom. And, you know, at, at that point, it was just cool. Like, he's a, he, just his humanity, man. Just like, he hadn't been there before. But you, you get the sense he, he really cared about each one of those emails. That's why he's bringing it up. And he hadn't thought of, you know, the solution yet. He just knows that it's bugging him that there's those 10,000 people. He right? could always do the Bruce Almighty solution. I don't remember if you saw that movie. but Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Where it's just like, yeah. yes to all of them. <laughs> remember when he made the prayers? <laughs> I'll come as the email. Yeah. Sorry, everyone's like, you guys were so serious, and then you had to go off the, the rails. Yeah, but, you know, just to bring it back to uh, a spiritual place, Pete. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sorry. We're, it, by the way, when you hear us like rip on each other like that, it's only teasing. But here's the deal. Um, I never hire anyone who hasn't been hurt. Mm, was that your third that, takeaway? That was my third, and it leads straight in from the second. Dude, I loved that. And, like, I'm looking at a list. I've got all my notes. I took off your, uh, your, your, you know, off your phone, and then I kept emailing myself at the table, like, boom, boom, thinking he was done. And then he'd keep going, and I'd chicka, chicka, chicka. But I never hire anyone who hasn't been hurt. Like, he says, if you haven't, and I remember reading this story, and I quote it in Church Zero, where basically uh, it says something to the effect of um, God can't really use a man until he's hurt him deeply. And 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 I love that Rick was just saying that uh, I make it a rule, no one's on my staff unless they've, unless they've been hurt. He says, otherwise they become a Pharisee. And I just love that because that's so true, man. When you've been deeply hurt, you look at David, right? That old story, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy, Gene Edwards wrote that story, A Tale of Three Kings. And it's about um, David, uh, Saul, and uh, Absalom. And his whole theory in that book is basically all those years that God allowed David to be on the run and be persecuted and be speared, and, you know, or be, you know, have spears chucked at him was because of the fact that one day David was going to be king and he needed to not be the kind of king who was going to throw spears at people. And the only way he could do that was to, to put him on the run and have him be the guy that had spears chucked at him. Mm. So that when he got there, 
he wouldn't be that guy. And many, many of us have been hurt by people and, you know, and, and you take that with you and you, you do, you think, you know, I never want to be that dude. And so, um, that was one of them that connected with that was another interesting thing he talked about when he recruited leaders. He had cleaned house a number of years ago and he said, I have 250 people under the age of 30 on my staff. And he said, we're actually the biggest millennial, uh, church. On the planet, because we employ 250 at the leadership level of the millennial generation, he goes, now it's something you'll never hear about. He goes, because they're all hidden know. in the church. Yeah, but but he he specifically has them as innovators um, because he at one stage he looked around and he's like, we're all getting up there like 40, 50, 60. And he was like, you know what? We're, we're, we've got a different take on where we're at in life. And I love the fact that what you brought early, up earlier about him building a building, he always said that that's, he said, when you build a building, that can always be the, the, the death knell of a church. It's where the church slows down, everybody settles. And like you said, he, he's saying at this stage, I'm throwing the money into the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to settle down. So everything that he was, you know, and he, he brought this up. He said, you know, many of the great leaders uh, of the last, you know, 100 years have been in a place financially where they build this big center, you know, towards the end of the last 10 years of their ministry. And he says, and, and, and the problem is, is no one coming up after them can maintain the crowds that they maintain. And so here, what they've done is they've just built the last of the dinosaurs. Mm. And he said, and he knew, it, it was awesome to hear him talk. He said, really, to be honest, he goes, uh, churches like Saddleback, even though they bucked the trend, they've just grown exponentially. Uh, but it's because he's strategically always looking ahead. But he said, you know what, he goes... And uh, trying to keep the appearance small. Absolutely. I mean, Not, it was just... Because he goes, one of the other problems when you build a building... Because his his advice was buy land as soon as you can, and then put off building as long as you can. Yeah. He goes, just do a tent, just do whatever, because once you build a building, then everyone like size. Oh, okay, we finally made it. We're we're already here. Whereas they've tried to keep everything looking small. That's why the sanctuary only fits three thousand. Yeah. Like they, they bought a piece of land that they could never build on and they sold it at a six million dollar profit. And he's like, Well Look. what they did was they traded it. Remember? Yeah. It was a yeah. $3 million land, and they traded it. Uh, it had grown to $6 million in value, and they traded it for another piece of land for $9 million. And yeah. so they got $6 million in equity just by having the land that they knew they could never build on. Yeah, and he was like, I could have never uh, saved that kind of capital. Not know? at that time. And, uh, no. And so it was really cool, man, just hearing how he's talking about everything. And he just said, you know, really, in in the future, he goes... The, these massive churches, he goes, it may be that uh, one day America's hosting churches that, you know, have up to 100,000 members. He goes, that's highly possible. Oh, well, he totally believed it. It wasn't just highly possible. Yeah. He goes, that will happen. It's just not going to look like the churches do today where it's like, you know, we bought a stadium and we filled yeah. it. Yeah. And he was very much, like you said, once he was large, he's thinking small. And so he was thinking outside the box. So a lot of the the, uh, you know, kind of localized the, the, the networks of house churches. That's how he thinks of his church. And so Sunday morning for him, and it's funny because this is exactly how we run Refuge Long Beach. The heart of the church is in small groups, you know, throughout the city. But 
the actual what people would consider the main church is what we consider our outreach service, and that's Sunday morning. And that's exactly how he's operating. Sunday is outreach for him. The heart of the church is what's going on during the week. Hmm. Yeah. Well, look, so, I know we're we're pretty much over our time, so yeah, we probably need to put a cap on this. But we, there are so many more things. That, like I said, we we had to limit ourselves to three each, just so we could you know end before we were here forever. Yeah. But there yeah. was literally so much that we both just kept getting from him. I mean, so many things that you were just saying, like uh, the modulars that they have there on the property, and you know the fact that they feed a hundred thousand people a year for free out of those. That they have free clinics that they run for the community. That they uh, have the free lawyers. Um, you've got any kind of legal problem, you know, they've got lawyers that that, that you come to them and get free legal advice, and. Um, and they looked at, okay, you know, what would it cost? Because they got 100,000 people a year that they're feeding out of this thing. And so they go, okay, well, you know, this is deserving of an actual building. But how he's trained his leaders to think, the guy that runs that said, you know what? Okay, we got back the number. It's going to cost us $12 million to build a building. He goes, I'd rather just take a million and go to 12 of our other properties and put up modulars at each one of those. He goes, yeah. That would be a better use of $12 million. But see, that's because of his leadership of yeah. drilling it into his people. It's not about building up. It's not about building up. It's about building out. It's about reaching yep. more people. What can we do to reach more people? And, and it, that, his leaders know is, it. His yeah, leaders sorry. know it. That's all I was just going to say. His leaders know it. They understand the game. Yeah, and that's why, you know, in Chapter 1 of Church, Church Zero, I put that, you know, he's he's my church planning hero. Because I found out probably ahead of the curve of a lot of people what he's doing for church planning. And, uh, and that's it, man. Like I, we can't wait to get this magazine into your hands. Uh, we're, we're hoping we, we don't know. I mean, I can't really put the data. We've got something in our mind. I'm not going to say it just in case, but, um, but we cannot wait to, to, that's all the magazine's going to unpack. There's all these amazing things in church planning you don't even know about that are going on all around the world. But before we do that, before we close down, we need to announce, uh, some of our buddies, uh, Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe. Uh, we had a great chance to sit down with them. They are going to be, um, hosting in Costa Mesa on January 23rd through the 25th, what we believe is a you cannot miss church planning conference called Centralized. And that's spelled with an S, a play on words, whereas we're talking about decentralizing the kingdom of God, getting it spread out there. They use the word uh, sent, S-E-N-T, for centralize. It's to motivate us for kingdom expansion, to build outwards rather than upwards, like what we were just talking about. Some of the speakers for that are Alan Hirsch, Hugh Halter, Jen Hatmaker, Michael Frost, Caesar Kalinowski, uh, uh, Ori Bratman, Ephraim Smith, Neil Cole, Noel Castellanos, Dan Kimball, Leroy Barber, Deborah Hirsch, Matt Smay, uh, Lance Ford, Joey Turner, Brad Briscoe, Brandon Hatmaker, um, Kim Hammond, uh, Mark Kotzenberger. Uh, I mean, th- this is an all-star lineup. I mean, they are massive. I didn't count how many leaders that is. But you can go to www.centralizedconference.com. Dot com again that is centralized we will be there we will have a booth there a table there if and you, if uh, you get your tickets now we'll even let you take a picture with us absolutely 
This has been the Church Planner Podcast. Thanks for joining us for the 18th episode where we became adults. And we're here to remind you that if you want to reach the ones nobody's reaching, you need to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music.